Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P dot com. Thanks! Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And this week, coming to us from Oakland, Oregon, uh, one of my all-time favorite people ever, 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 is Caroline Randall. Um, There's such an interesting way to introduce her, but I think for the purpose of an interview about life and death, uh, the reason I think she's going to really stand out for my audience is that she was actually at one of the more famous mass shootings at a university in Oregon. And uh, she's not only a survivor of it, but she was directly uh, involved with and knew like several of the people. So um, it's going to be kind of a tight, uh, weird episode for everyone, because before we get into all that, we're going to just kind of have fun and catch up and uh, figure out who the hell Caroline is. So how are you, Caroline? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm pretty good. And just because I forgot the name, what was the name of the university that you were at? So it was actually a community college. It's the only call, only secondary um, education institution in the county. Um, and it is literally like the only opportunity to change your life via the kind of socioeconomic system of the United States for our people so it's a it like a lot of our people kind of talk about it like it's a university because the people in douglas county don't necessarily always understand the difference between like a baccalaureate core credit and uh university credit graduate credit etc so like it is a university to a lot of the people in the area um but its name is umpqua community college and then i should also mention that it's not like you were a student there you were actually working there so uh in what capacity did you work there uh, I was the director of the Student Support Services Trio Transfer Opportunity Program. So it was a federally funded program that helps low-income and first-generation students do what they needed to do to get to a bachelor's. So I was like an uh, an academic advisor as well as a course instructor um, and a director of a program. And then actually after the shooting occurred, my very close friend uh, was who was actually on the English staff at the time was asked to teach what was left of the class uh, as the instructor was also one of the victims and he invited me to co-teach it with him so i taught the what was left of the class wow okay so we're gonna hit like the pause button on that part of the conversation only because i want our audience to understand exactly how a person like you ends up in that geographic region and with that job because it's not a coincidence um having known you since you were i believe 22 I think so. <laughs> I moved to Portland, Oregon, and we had some mutual friends, and so that's how I met you. And at the time, you had just finished um, university yourself as a student, and you were full-time teaching, and you were an English teacher, and you were one of the most um, – you were, like, one of the first uh, really, like, socially conscious people I ever met who wasn't annoying. And I know that's a rude thing to say, <laughs> but uh, I grew up in Berkeley, California, so maybe that'll give some context to our audience. But I grew up with, like, very in-your-face activism-type people who uh, always rub me the wrong way because I think it's better to be a little, like, kind to get people to shift their consciousness. So anyway, I met you, and you were, like, really into, like, you know, helping people out and all that. So I kind of want to get uh, up to that point. So where were you born? Uh, and where'd you grow up and what generation, if any, do you consider yourself a member of? Um, and actually, before I pop into that, that's actually kind of funny because right now, I, when you talk about how I end up in this area, this is a very red area, very conservative area, very anti-education area. And I'm, you know, could be classified as a liberal and people don't understand me. And I'm like, I'm, I get, I have, I share my, dis- the same disdain for neoliberals as you. And like the article I published was called, uh, 
kind of called out white liberals for actually perpetrating uh, modern day colonialism more so than the red folks. <laughs> so, so I just think that's kind of just an interesting little tidbit. I am more comfortable in environments like this than neoliberal environments. They nauseate me. So I was born in Portland, Oregon. I'm a fifth generation Oregonian. My mom's side of the family came across uh, the Oregon Trail and they were actually um, got a donation land claim from Abraham Lincoln. But my great 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 grandfather promptly lost it at a horse bet, and so the land the land claim hangs in the Lake Oswego Library, and the land today is a golf course on the Willamette River. Like, had he not lost it, I'd be like a princess of Oregon. <laughs> That's unreal. <laughs> so funny. But you know, we have a gambling issue apparently. So, <laughs> so my family, I my mom grew up in Oregon City, and my dad, his dad was a silver miner in Kellogg, Idaho, and. When the mine shut down, they moved to halfway Oregon. So my dad grew up in a tiny, tiny town in the Snake River area. And then they moved to the Portland area when my grandfather got the black lung and had to be closer to doctors. Um, so my parents, yeah, so my most of my family is very, very rural. But my parents were definitely those baby boomers that wanted their kids to, like, have more than them. So, like, they worked their butts off and they moved us to Westland, Oregon. And I have, like, a top-notch, like, private rate education, even though, like, my my family was kind of like a joke in the town because my dad drove like old cars and I was raised to like disdain yuppies but they moved us to like the new money suburbs (laughs) but didn't really make any sense it only makes sense to me because I grew up in like a somewhat similar situation in California but um minus the parents having disdain for the yuppies uh they were just kind of more like let's live on the edge of this nice school district town and and did you actually go to a, a technically private school or was it one of those public schools like mine that like is basically private anyway yeah, uh, public with enough money in the town and enough like the way that, the way the public education system's funded, it, it was private, but it was public. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I'm sure our audience can see that we we had a lot in common, and we were both living in Portland, and so we became uh, fast friends. It was our early 20s. It was a super fun era of my life. And then many years later, um, we've always kept in touch. But when the shooting happened, I mean, it it, it blew my mind. So you you left Portland slash I, you were teaching in Vancouver, Washington, and living in Portland, and then you left. And you got married, you had a family and all that. And that's what brought you to Oakland originally, right? Oakland, Oregon, just for our audience. Right. Actually, I remember when I'd come down, I'd come, I'd come down here for the weekends and I think I'd send you pictures and you were like, what are you people doing? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it was crazy. I mean, you were like, like, there were like tractors and trees and like logging and like all these things that as a city boy from California, I really didn't like ever think I would like end up spending time with. And I love, I love where you live. I've been there more times than I can count. So, um. And you stayed. You stayed there. You still live there. Uh, so, whew, I, I think let's uh, let's just tell us the story of that day, and then maybe I'll ask you about the follow ups and stuff. But um, after you tell that story, I think I'll ask you what you think happens when you die. I think I'll wait and and first just have you tell us the story of that uh, fateful, awful day. Okay. And then before I tell this story, I'm going to preface it with um, what's interesting is I have literally not really talked about this publicly um it's been seven years and a friend of mine's father is a lawyer in portland and he's part of this big anti-gun legislation program and he wanted to interview me for his campaign and i answered his phone call and answered his questions because i've known his son since i was five and he's like a father figure and i talked to him as a and it wasn't a family friend like i didn't have i didn't necessarily understand what the legislation was he was interested in i didn't i don't know what his i still to this day don't know what his campaign is even though i let him use my story because i have always felt a disdain for the people that like created an identity as a shooting survivor and somehow felt like they profited off the 
the unnecessary death. So I've never, it didn't occur to me until I had a conversation with him that I've never written or spoken about it since. And this was just a, a March this year when I had the conversation with him. Um, and so since then I, I was unable to stop my body from kind of shaking while I was telling him the story. So I was like, well, maybe I should write about this because I write to process. And then I sat down and wrote and like, I just, it was really interesting because I've ha- I've experienced quite a few traumas in the past seven years. And to me, the school shooting was the least significant because like when other people were walking around as if like the rug had been pulled from under them or like, how could this happen or this out of the other? I'm like, you clearly have not been a social critic your whole lives. This is a natural product of our vacuous kind of social structure and, you know, the values that the, con- the consumerism and the patriarchy and the, and the capitalism like lead directly to this. And like, how do you not understand? This is a natural product, right? And like, yes, the, the, the actual personal losses were jarring, but to me, it wasn't shocking at all. And it, what was shocking was that seven years later, I'm finding out that, okay, this did affect me quite a bit more than I realized. And then I'm like, holy crap. And what did the other things do to me? <laughs> Let's pull out a survival mode. Um, so I just kind of wanted to preface with that. So the day of the shooting, I remember um, I was kind of newly divorced. I was raising my two and three-year-old on my own. And they went to the daycare at the college. And I remember the night before, a really close family friend of mine like had had like not really a stroke, but like an episode or whatever. So, and her caregiver wasn't really doing a great job. So I had spent the whole night before like wiping down her ma- uh, microwave, getting the lint out of her dryer, like little things that she couldn't do and her caregiver wasn't paying attention to. And um, and I'm a writer and stuff. And I remember at like four in the morning, I had this poem in my head. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to get the boys ready and I'm going to get to work early and I'm going to write this poem because I don't, I, you know, I was too nervous to like sit down and write it before I got to work because I'd surely be an hour late. So, <laughs> so I have a very vivid memory of like five o'clock in the morning, driving to the college with a two and three year old, getting him set up in my office with like milk and breakfast and all that. And they, they always had a box of toys in my office. And uh, I wrote my poem. And then uh, the daycare opened at 745. So I remember taking him up there and my good friend uh, whose office was in the daycare um, he's also, he's writing staff and he's a poet. And so I was like, Hey, I want to, I want to share this poem with you. I want to read this poem to you, but I got to take my kids up to the daycare and then come back down and I have this out of the other. And he's like, Oh, I really want to hear it. I want to hear it. Let me be down or whatever. So I dropped the kids off, came back to my office, got the day running, got the students off to their 8am classes, blah, blah, blah. And then he popped by my office and he was like, Hey, I want to read your poem, but I forgot to have a meeting with my boss. And his boss was the department chair for the literature department. And so I was like, Oh yeah, no big I'm here all day, you know, come back in an hour. So uh, that was about 10 in the morning. I can't remember. What's really interesting to me is that I literally could not tell you the details of like what happened at the shooting other than my own experience. I can't tell you the name of the shooter. I can't tell you what time things happen. I don't, I never process those. But um, yeah, but I remember um, him leaving and then about like 10 or 15 minutes later, I remember distinctly the bartender for the lamplighter came into my office, which is a local bar. And she was just like, I need something printed in color for my anatomy and physiology class and I, they won't let us print in color in the library. And I'm like, okay, here you go, girl. So, <laughs> so I printed those and as I was like handing them to her, um, I just heard this, follow my voice, follow my voice. And I, it was an advisor in my program and so um, I just naturally followed her voice 
And then I understood that kind of everybody in the campus center where my office was, was like all moving in the same direction. And I was like, God, what's going on? And it wasn't until we were all herded into the financial aid office and told the duck that I was like, oh, there's a shooting. And then all of a sudden my phone starts going off and like my phone is going off and it's like school shooting in Snyder. And my heart stopped because my best friend was just on his way to Snyder, which is the building that hit the English department is housed in. And so I like, I rem- yeah, I remember stopping walking, grabbing my phone and texting him. And I'm like, there's a school shooting in Snyder. Where are you? And I couldn't breathe and I couldn't move. And the advisor that was getting everybody to follow stopped with me. And she was frustrated that I remember feeling frustrated. She was frustrated that I stopped. And I saw the three dots on the iPhone and I just fell to my knees and was able to breathe because he's alive. He's texting me back. And so then I was able to get up and I followed her in. And then he's like, what? And he's like, I forgot my materials. I'm up in my office. And I'm like, thank God he's a dipshit. Like if that was me, I would have been prepared and on time and in the right office okay okay that makes sense so then the next thing i said is my babies are here because his office is in the daycare and uh so he goes hold on and i apparently the um communication mechanism to to the daycare didn't work during the shooting and i was the first one to alert them of it so he went in and tried to tell the director and she's like what he's like caroline wouldn't lie about this and so he didn't tell me for a few months but my younger son's class was out on a walk at the time and they very much frequently walked by snyder like i remember it was a joke with the administrators on campus that like i'd be walking with administrators from building to building and if i just had to dive bomb behind a rhododendron it's because if that two-year-old saw me it was like game over and we had to go home <laughs> so uh but apparently the teacher had decided to go up to the track rather than to for, like on a whim no reason so there's you know evan's class very much could have been part of that shooting so basically once i knew my kids were okay and to was okay i remember just sitting cross-legged in the financial aid office like fine calm as a cucumber my phone kept going off with different students kind of giving me updates on who's dead who was alive um what was going on and things like that. Uh, friends from high school that knew that I was in a shooting before I did texting me. And I'm like, how do you know? I mean, you live in Portland. How do you know about like insane? And then I remember there was a woman hyperventilating in the financial aid office. And I, I don't remember if I put my hand on her or if it was more of like an energy transfer thing. But I was like, you have to be calm. And it reminded me of this book where the, the, the Hmong people were trying to escape persecution and they had to give their babies heroin just enough to keep them from crying in the night and having the whole village be massacred versus... Or, you know, risking them dying because they had to give them heroin to save the village. And I just remember, like, kind of putting my hand on her. And I was just like, breathe. Like, we're going to be fine. And um, it was, like, 45 minutes or so before we were let out. And then uh, the part that, like... The, the part that I found out later, you know, these two students of mine, they were both like kind of in their 50s. Like the last time they'd been to high school or college was like 1981. They, you know, one of them had cre- just made meth in the hills of Douglas County for years and stuff like that. Not not from an educated family. The other one was in a super domestic violence relationship. She had just gotten out and was like squatting in a house with her 18-year-old daughter, doing everything she could to try to like teach her 18-year-old daughter how to like become independent. And we had spent all summer trying to get her like birth certificate so she could have an ID so she could get a job and like a driver's license. And like, and these women both tested into the lowest math and writing you could, math 10, writing 10. And they were so discouraged by that, but they had each other. And so they were like, let's take every class together. 
we'll get each other to college level. They went through my summer bridge program. You know, I saw these women every day. And um, Kim tried to stop the shooter and she was shot point blank in the chest. And Sharon, um, Sharon gave her CPR until she died. And that was the college level writing class. They were on their second day. They'd made it to college level writing. And I just remember, yeah. So like when Sharon graduated, she wore a big picture of Kim on her gown. And I've taken, I've taken Sharon on to the college and stuff to, to be with her as she tries to she does her best to like grieve positively, but the former president of the college is just, it's disgusting what she does with the event and its memory. Um, maddening, maddening really. Um, and so that's kind of, oh, they wouldn't let the parents go to the children either. And so, and then we were getting bused to the fairgrounds and I was like appalled they wouldn't let us. So I texted every parent in the in the um, daycare and we kind of collected together and we rode a bus together. And when we got to the fairgrounds, I remember people were trying to like, you can't just stand here. You, we, there's a flow. And I was like, F- you, we're not moving. Our babies are coming. We're not f- moving till you give us our babies. Like, you and so they let the parent they let the parents stand there and um i remember when the kids got off the bus like my older boy was wearing this big like luigi hat <laughs> and like just the biggest smile you've ever seen on a kid right and they get off the bus and they like run for me and i'm just like hi boys you know and they're playing in my skirt and they had no idea that anything traumatic happened the daycare fed them ice cream and told them they were practicing going to kindergarten and so then all the parents got their kids and we walked into the walked into the fairgrounds okay i mean like I want to keep these episodes you know at a reasonable length so the reason I'm not going to ask like a million follow-up questions is I think our audience can a just kind of you know read about the actual event if they want more details and b I think the parts you shared was exactly what I wanted which is to hear the connections to the people and just the connections to how a tragedy feels um I'm more interested in talking about the act of living as a human on earth with death all around us so I would like to know um what is what do you think happens when you die that's the first question and then did this event change that or not? Okay, good question. I remember when I was looking at the question, like how does our understanding of the afterlife affect how we behave on earth? And I'm like, so I started listening to some of the other episodes and stuff. And I, I really don't, think I like can say what happens after you know like um there's a lot of I think theories are interesting but I I really find it really intriguing when people are like a hundred percent sure about what happens and I'm like how do you know that like uh like like you know I'm I'm also very interested in consciousness and you know the fact that it's not visible and it's like like the way you can prove it I guess is through the the performance of language, but I can't say for, you know, I, I I think it's interesting when people can claim what has consciousness and what doesn't. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand how you can make that claim. So I don't have any idea what happens after we die. Um, I do have a sense that I've lived before. Um, and I'm like, okay, what am I supposed to get right this time? What's going on? (laughs) What am I doing? What am I doing wrong? Right. (laughs) And I was talking to my other friend, Michael, the other day about it. And I was like, maybe my job is to just neutralize my energy before it gets put back in the universe so that it doesn't do any damage the next time (laughs) wow i have not heard that one and i actually like that i really like that that's that's a new one for me um not just from the show but in general i like that that's cool i am kind of curious uh when i knew you were a vegetarian are you still no and what's funny is the way i became an unvegetarian was when i was pregnant with my first son my husband who was a logger kept frying venison in panko and i was like that's not fair most delicious thing I've ever eaten. So then I only ate meat that was like harvested locally and, you know, slippery slope. (laughs) 
I understand um, completely. I've, I've bounced between. So the reason I brought it up is because I always think of vegetarians as people who aren't necessarily more spiritual than other people, but they're certainly including animals in a something that most people include just humans in, which would be like the ethical imperative system. So, and I, you know, and the question I ask, it isn't like what, what happens when you die? It's what do you think happens when you die? So I like your answer because you're just saying like, you've thought about it, but you really don't have any one sort of like clue. But I think when you said that you felt like maybe you reincarnated or had other lives, I, I, I felt that same pull. So I'm curious, can you uh, cite like any specific example? Or is there like, like you ever like, been to like a place in Europe and you were like, Oh my God, I feel like I've been here before. Like anything like that. I have experiences. I've had several experiences where, um, you could either call them psychic or they're familiar or something. And then also just when I, when I go through these kind of hardships, I'm like, like, duh people, of course this happens. Like, haven't you lived through this a thousand times? Maybe it's just that I've read that much literature, you know, like, you know, how like when your parents, you think you have memories when you're a child, but really you've just seen the photos and heard the stories enough. So it could, could just, <laughs> it could just be that I've read enough literature that I'm like, duh people. <laughs> I don't know. Like an example of one would be like when 9-11 happened, I remember I don't have bad dreams. Well, I didn't used to. I woke up in the morning and I had this weird dream that um, that my friend Megan and I had hijacked a plane and we couldn't land it and we crashed into an island or something. But we were able to get out of the cockpit and walk off the off on the wing and jump down in the sand. And I remember walking into my mom's room to tell her about the dream and how strange it was. And then that day, 9-11 happened. And there wasn't a radio on. There was no news on in the house. It's not like I heard it somewhere, you know. And then I remember one having like shortly after i had a dream that somebody put a pillow over my face and shot me in the face that was the day we bombed iraq wow um i've had experiences where i had a boyfriend that i loved very deeply and he was traveling in europe at the time with friends and you know this is <laughs> you're gonna laugh at this mike this was before cell phones so i was like i remember being in my bedroom and i was in the house alone and i woke up and he was sitting naked cross-legged in my bedroom like very much physically there. And I remember rubbing my eyes and I was like, oh my God, like I'm trying to touch him. Like, are you here? Like, this is crazy. You're supposed to be in Spain. And then, you know, whenever he got like access to a call that he could call me on his little 1-800 travel phone card or whatever, I was telling him about it. And he said he was at the time in Spain, he was trying to explain me to this person he had met in Spain. And so like, I have like experiences like that. And that's not necessarily related to living before, but just some sort of sensitivity. Okay. So this question would be offensive if it wasn't like someone I know as well as I know you. <laughs> you don't really care at all what anyone thinks about you. And it's one of the most empowering and fun parts of being your friend. Like anywhere you go, you're just going to have a blast and you're going to dance and do your thing. So when you say all these things that you just said that a lot of people would like mock, how do you like reconcile having the, the experiences you have? And then also just being like the same person who says, how do you know? Like, what do you know? Anything, you know, like, does that eat you up or does it just like all make sense? Um, no, and that's a good, really good question. And it doesn't necessarily make sense. Like I, uh, I can't say that chance was actually in my bedroom. I can't say that it was a psychic experience. I can't say for sure any of that. It could all very well just be a glitch in the universe. Like I don't necessarily know for sure what happened. I just know that it was like a significant experience that I felt deeply. I don't really have a problem with the unknown at all. Like I remember thinking, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Like, you know, like, especially the question that you were going to ask, like, how does your understanding of the afterlife affect how you behave on earth 
It doesn't. I live in a way that I can go to bed feeling proud of myself and I can look myself in the mirror every day. And it's 100% important to me that I live up to my own ethical expectations to the point where I get myself in trouble all the time. Like I'm known as a troublemaker or whatever because I cannot behave in a way that I find unethical. I just can't. I would say that's actually the number one thing we have in common. I would say that that's like, I never thought of it this way, but that is clearly right. what always made me like very positive around you and never worried because I'm just like, oh no, this person's like me. They would rather cut off their hand than screw someone over. Right, right. So with that said, uh, I'm going to kind of like get into a weird category I've never gotten into. And my wife, our producer uh, may kill me for this because I always say like, we won't get political and stuff. <laughs> I kind of want to get uh, political with you just because I, I want to hear when you were younger, you and I... I, as we should have, we had a lot of angst and piss and all that shit, you know, piss and vinegar, whatever the phrase is that like young people have. But now we're like much older, we have kids, and you've clearly mellowed and I've clearly mellowed. So what do you have any suggestion for this like completely divided world? You know, you brought up like the blue state, red state thing, you brought up like, which side, you know, neoliberalism versus liberalism, like you and I both get called liberals by conservatives and then we get called conservative by liberals like i don't know what the hell i am right. so do you have any like overall feeling or advice for like i'm going to assume there's millions of people like you and me absolutely and what's interesting is like when i left the college i was desperate to find work that i found meaningful uh that could also support my boys and so i started working for the rural organizing project which was a nonprofit that was a collective of rural human dignity groups doing work in the across rural oregon and i was really excited and this is getting to my disillusionment, which is going to answer how I'm going to answer the question. What's crazy, this tiny nonprofit, the two co-directors were lesbians that like touted themselves as like, like very feminist and very this and very that and like very, you know, everything that, that a good liberal should do. And I was appalled, like I was appalled then. And now the me that's like, well, Caroline, you've lived like eight times. I did not see that coming. They perpetrated and adhered to patriarchy with a stronger ferocity than like any man could dream of. And like engaged in the most offensive anti-feminism like I've ever seen. So when Trump came into office and all this stuff was happening, blah, 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 I became obsessed with trying to understand tyranny and uh, how does a dictatorship happen? How, do, how does this happen? So I started reading all these really cool books by Timothy Snyder, all this stuff. And I just like just became obsessed with studying tyranny. And the number one like action that you can do to gain control of a people or a group is to make reality indiscernible. So if people cannot identify reality you can do whatever you want with them. When I first started teaching high school, I always started out with Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 451 because the kids get up in arms about censorship and they're like, we have to be able to read. I'm like, perfect. We'll read all year. <laughs> and then <laughs> they all saw connections in Paris. In 2010, they all, 2008 to 2010, they all immediately saw connections between Fahrenheit 451 and our world. It was like very clear that the ear pods were our headphones and, you know, all this stuff. 10 years later, when I left the college, I did go back to high school and tried to teach. And it, it cut me to the bone. These kids refused to see the connection. So in just 10 years, it was so depressing to me that I was like, so dejected. That's when I went to ROP. And then I was like, Oh, my God, nothing exists. I became like anti political. And it was kind of a thing because I am a educated white woman, and I hold a lot of privilege. And I used to think it was irresponsible for privileged people to just be like, 
well, I can't do anything about it, so I'm not going to care, and I'm just going to hide in my privilege. And I was like, well, that's disgusting. I can't even handle it. Like, when people talk to me about politics, I'm just like, this is a corporate oligarchy. Everybody's on the same team. They're distracting you with their rhetoric. And they both have giant horses. <laughs> okay, I can't put that part in. But <laughs> no, 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 you're you're rambling, but I wanted you to, and uh, you also there were many poignant sentences there, and I wanted to take the um, the governor off the car today because I, I feel like I keep interviewing guests who have these profound and interesting things to say, and I want this show to take the full steam ahead approach to life because I want our guests to really discuss what's important to them. And I think that talking with you about these kind of events and and hearing your experience at the college that day, it's really eye-opening to me because I don't think there's a lot of people out there who think there are people who survive mass shootings and say, both of you shut up, like calm down and stop, like, you know, fighting and arguing. And so, and so I wanted to have you on and I wanted to hear you talk about it and you did. And I'm, uh, I'm impressed by everything you said. I also think that I, I should have sold at the beginning of the interview that you are, you're a fantastically successful single mom. And that does play into a lot of this stuff. Um, that's a hard life. So uh, I am going to have to end the interview now, but I always give my guests the last little like uh, floor. So this time, instead of getting like specific and political, uh, just what would you like to say to uplift humanity? <laughs> oh, that was my biggest concern as I was like, am I going to be depressing? No, it's not depressing, but you can, I know you have like warm, uplifting thoughts as well. I mean, you write poetry or yes. <laughs> you're very expressive. So what's really interesting and in, uh, where I am in my life and how I survive is I've kind of let go of the rest of the world and I really have to nurture myself and the way that I can kind of thrive. I have, well, I have my, my youngest son would make fun of me. He's like, why do you need three gardens, mom? But like I have, I garden and like, it's really important to me to be connected to the cycles of life like we're going to we just built a rabbit hutch and we're going to build we're going to raise meat rabbits and we're going to try to produce some of our own meat we have chickens uh big vegetable garden and just the more connected I am to like earth processes and life cycles it's it's like okay we we still have access to reality this is real that's great I um the connection to nature yeah and actually, it's funny, because when I first met you, I think you were like a big Henry David Thoreau fan. And I used to make fun of you about that. I could be wrong. Well, and people make fun of me for how much space I use in my garden for flowers, because you could use it for produce like food. And I always say the Persian proverb, if I had two loaves of bread, I would sell one and buy hyacinths, for hyacinths will feed my soul. That's cool. And that's uh, the only reason I know that word is I do a lot of crossword puzzles and it's one of those necessary words that you have to memorize. <laughs> well, Caroline Randall, um, I cannot thank you enough. This has been uh, just a total pleasure for me. Um, the only thing you did uh, was you gave me a lot of work as an editor because I got to put a couple bleeps in, but that is okay. Um, I wouldn't have it any other way. So thank you so much for coming on our show and helping us put another proverbial nail in the coffin. Um, we appreciate you. We appreciate our audience. And as always, I'd like to remind our audience to please head over to Mikey Opt m-i-k-e-y-o-p-p.com and hit the big old contact subscribe button so you can get the full Mikey Op package including essays, books, podcasts, music and all that other good stuff um, and to everyone who's listening at home thank you so much and uh, we will see you soon Walking alone